showing anger is weakness and overcoming it is strength. I think once you make that, that fundamental shift, everything gets a lot easier. So today I'm going to share some practical anger management advice, 2000 years in the making, primarily from, from uh, Plutarch and his essay on anger or on the avoidance of anger. And also from two Buddhist monks, um, Thich Nhat Hanh and Ajahn Chah, plus like some modern psychology thrown in the mix and some personal experience. Most people struggle with anger at some point in their lives because of various reasons. Like they don't think they have control over it. They feel justified. They think it projects strength and confidence. It gives them control over their situation or perceived control over their situation. But developing composure in the face of anger is one of the most useful things you can do for yourself as a leader and as a human being. If you've ever had a leader that's like out of control, flies off the handle, you, you can see how much it undermines their credibility and how much it acts against their best interests. You know, a, a leader who tactfully gets angry when it counts, when it matters in a controlled way is a very different thing. You know, if you're trying to emphasize to people that they've really crossed the line, you can behave angry. But the feeling of anger, the uncontrolled, you know, burning rage uh, is is just a sign of, of weakness and really does a lot to harm relationships and hurt your credibility and, and causes you to make suboptimal decisions, which ties right into the core theme of this podcast lately, which is making better decisions and being a better leader, right? So this is actually a very central topic to those things, but it's more broadly useful as well. So how can you develop composure in the face of anger? Well, you can understand the nature of anger, cultivate detachment and reason when you're not angry. So you can bring that outlook and those tools into the angry state and also just generally take a stoic outlook to life. So there's less material, flammable material floating around in your head. So what do I mean by understand the nature of anger? Well, um, historically speaking, people have taken various perspectives on anger. Aristotle and the Platonists viewed anger as sometimes a good thing. And there are schools of Buddhism that also view anger as having a good side, right? Like, these schools of Buddhism would say anger is a form of bright wisdom, which is, like, clarifying. When you're angry, like, things, things that you were letting go now seem clear. Uh, but... Other Buddhist schools um, and the Stoics and Plutarch and the Socratics all believe that anger clouds the mind and is a sign of emotional weakness. And especially for someone who is a quote-unquote hothead, anger should be mitigated and suppressed because it's something that is out of proportion. It's something that basically fills your head with smoke and fire and makes you make suboptimal choices. Um, so Plutarch has a great quote on this and it's about what anger does to your mind, the, the feeling of having your mind filled with anger. So the quote is right here. So 
Anger displaces intelligence and then commits criminal acts. The situation is similar to when people burn to death in their houses, in the sense that anger makes the inside full of chaos, smoke, and noise, with the result that the mind is incapable of seeing or hearing anything beneficial. That's why it's easier for an abandoned ship to take on a helmsman from the outside in the middle of a storm in the open sea than it is for someone who's being tossed in the sea of fury and anger to accept reason from an external source, unless he's made his own rationality ready. So that kind of ties into the second point, but we'll come back to that. Um, for, for this first takeaway, it's important not to like subtly reward yourself for being angry or to frame it as something that's positive. Uh, and I think it's really easy to do that uh, because our, our media kind of promotes it. In many ways, our, our culture promotes it. Um, previously, it was mostly promoted for men, but now increasingly it's promoted for women too, right? The, the, the trope of like the woman who um, isn't allowed to be angry by society and therefore like frees herself and you know, is just as angry as the guys. And that's like seen as a good thing. Um, when in reality, it's, it, it, it was never a good thing for either. Um, so when we talked about Descartes' error and we talked about emotion and reason, the signal that anger gives you and the utility of anger to divide the problem space and help you make sense of complex inputs, that's one thing, okay? That's... On the inside, anger arises and tells you something, right? But that, that thing that it tells you needs to be interpreted, needs to be processed. And I think the real problem is when anger fuels behavior or when you feed anger. Um, and, and you're more likely to do that if you see anger as something justifiable and righteous and, um, you know, a means of being strong or projecting strength, which, which it's not. Um, and Plutarch has some recommendations around this. He recommends you study people when they're angry and ask yourself, do they seem strong or do they seem weak? Do they seem in control or do they seem out of control? Are they making good decisions or bad decisions? And he also recommends when, when you're angry, you stand in front of a mirror and look at yourself and ask yourself, is this how you want to appear to the people you care about? You know, do you want to appear wild and out of control and have a, a ridiculous aspect about you? Um, and I think we've all either been there or known people who fly off the handle and it's like, it's laughable, you know? Um because it's just so um, out there and so extreme. So he has a good quote on this too. Yeah, so here we go. Um, Benevolent is an epithet of the king of the gods, though the Athenians call him tempestuous. But, you know, his point is, Zeus is benevolent. Punishment is the work of the Furies and demigods. It's not divine and Olympian.
Yeah. So, um, so that that's the first thing is just to reframe your your relationship with anger and understand that it's a signal, but it's not something you should feed. It's not a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness, and it's it's not something that you need to express right in the moment, and it's something you probably shouldn't express right in the moment. So to the second point about cultivating reason and detachment when you're not mad, as Plutarch says, like it's easier to get a helmsman on a ship in the middle of a storm in the open sea in the giant waves than it is to get reason into your mind when you're already angry. So when you're not angry, cultivating detachment and practicing reason kind of puts these secret agents inside the house before the house sets on fire, right? And then the phone calls are coming from inside the house rather than outside. So what does it mean to cultivate detachment? Well, I think it means a couple of things or it, it, can, um, it can be trained by a couple of things. So what it means to me is cultivating the ability to observe yourself and not just be a participant in your life. And a lot of Stoics talk about this and obviously Buddhism is predicated on this as well. Um, where you're trying to zoom out and see what's going through your mind with, with clarity. See, see how you're feeling, you know, uh, see what you're thinking. Notice if your muscles are tense. Notice if you're standing a certain way. Notice if you're talking a certain way. And to do this, I think the foundation is just to do some mindfulness meditation on a regular basis. I think that trains up your faculty of detachment um, consistently. And then when you need it, it's, it's, you have more of a reserve of it. And I think the second thing is to practice when you're actually angry. So use anger as like a trigger for mindfulness. And each time you're angry, you're going to have like an opportunity to strengthen that muscle. And one thing Plutarch talks about is as you practice that, as you get angry, but detach and diffuse your anger early, um, you get better and better at it. And on the flip side, he talks about anger being like, you know, battering a piece of metal or something where the more you let yourself fly off the handle, the thinner the metal gets and the easier it is for you to fly off the handle. So that, that that's the awareness side of this ratio, the, the, the detachment side. But as far as the reason side, I think this is about you can take it from a CBT angle, right? So CBT is this therapeutic modality, cognitive behavioral therapy. And part of how it works is you reframe your thoughts rationally. So you look for cognitive distortions and you say, hey, is this thought really accurate? And if not, why not? And a lot of stoic meditations, quote unquote, are similar to that, where you put things in perspective. You know, someone wrongs you and instead of just being like, oh, you know, they were wrong to do that. You know, why'd they insult me? Whatever. Why'd they say my t-shirt looks like my mom bought it or something? Um, you can say, first of all, does this have any impact on me? You can say, second of all, this is a, a test of my composure and a test of my stoicism and my emotional response. And it's benefiting me. They're doing this for me in order for me to cultivate stoicism and composure. 
Um, you can also reframe things to say, how many people have, have things worse off than me? And is this really worth getting angry about? You can use kind of gratitude and perspective to overwhelm the negative emotion. You can say, hey, there's going to be a day when I'm not hanging out with my friends like this. And, you know, there's going to be a last time that I hang out with my friends like this. And whether I'm being insulted or not, it's still an opportunity to be here and have a good time with people I care about, you know. So this is a random example. Nobody has said this to me recently, but just to illustrate the ways in which you can like reframe your cognitions um, using stoic methods that are pretty similar to CBT. And by doing this with small things and throughout your life, when you're angry, you're going to have this muscle built up where you're like, okay, this happened, I'm angry. But what does this really mean? What What's the impact of this? Um, should I really be angry? Is this what was really intended? So that's... That's the two sides of it. There's detachment, which is, you know, awareness applied. And there's reason, which is really about cognitive reframing and being rational and and such. And when it comes to reason, another factor is um, sometimes you do need to set a boundary or make it clear to someone that what they did wasn't okay. But the irony is like anger actually makes you worse at doing that. You know, um, if you simmer down and are calm and approach it rationally, you're more likely to punish someone in the right way such that, you know, there's the, the best outcome possible for them and for you. Right, so the Stoics aren't saying just let people roll over you. They're saying in a dispassionate and cold manner, you know, respond the right way to the right things. And with that, what he says is There's a good quote on that topic. So anger has caused many, many people to die before exacting their revenge. Um, Courage has no need of bitter gall since it's imbued with reason, whereas anger and rage are brittle and unsound. And this right here is the perfect description in a way because it illustrates what we were talking about previously about our culture having this kind of like wellness-oriented advice to just like throw all your emotions out there and like it's always better to express than not to. If you suppress your emotions, you're going to like you know, it's all going to build up and you're going to like die, die an early death from it. Like all this kind of stuff. Like what Plutarch says is nurses say to their children, stop crying and you can have it. And we could usefully address anger in the same way. Simmer down, shut up, slow down, and you're, you'll improve the chances and probability of getting what you want. You know, 
And why I think that's so perfect is we're really encouraging people to act like children. And, and we think that that's a beneficial and positive thing. Right? When you're, when you're watching TV and you see like um, the, whatever, the commander of the, the, the starship just like yelling and screaming and chewing out her subordinates, we're supposed to all clap and be like, oh, look. You know, she overcame the social pressure and, and she's like lashing out at everyone and that's a good thing. It's not a good thing. It wasn't a good thing when they were portraying men as being that way. And it's not a good thing now when there's a more equitable uh, distribution of childlike lack of self-control. So, um, yeah, so I think that is that is important to recognize. Another thing on the detachment point is Anger is easier to suppress early on. So just as it's easy to control the flame, which is starting to catch, uh, you want to pay attention to the early stages of anger and become aware of it gradually starting to smolder and ignite as a result of some remark or rubbishy sarcasm. And if you do recognize that, and if you're detached enough, you don't have to exert yourself a great deal. And you can often put an end to it simply by keeping quiet and ignoring the remark. Anyone who doesn't fuel a fire puts it out, and anyone who doesn't feed in anger in the early stages doesn't get into a huff, and is prudent in and eliminating their anger. Another way Plutarch puts this is, there's a first-rate way to bring down our tyrant-like temper, which is not to listen or obey when it's ordering us to raise our voices, look fierce, beat our breasts, but to keep quiet and as if the emotion were a disease, not aggravated by thrashing and yelling. Another great quote on anger here is, we do not feel love or jealousy or fear for everyone, but anger leaves nothing alone, nothing in peace. We get angry at enemies and friends, at children and parents, and even at gods and animals and inanimate objects. Which speaks to the indiscriminate nature of anger, right? When you're angry about one thing or at one person, now you're getting angry at everything, you're angry at the world, and there's clear irrationality in that, right? I mean, yeah. So it's just, um, there's a lot to it. I think it's a practice. Um, and specifically at the end of this essay, Plutarch recommends going through periods where you're like, hey, I'm going to try to not, I'm going to try to be composed when I'm angry for the next week. And then I'm going to try to do it for two months. And I'm going to try to do it for three months. And then as you do that, you really build these muscles of detachment and reason. Um, and it just gets easier and easier over time. So the third point is generally harboring or cultivating a stoic outlook. So being precious, soft, entitled, and folded in luxury promotes anger because you're used to things being a certain way. You're, you have these high expectations for how you should be treated, for how your life should be. On the flip side, being adaptable, having a simple lifestyle, and having gratitude and appreciation for what you have really diffuses anger. And this goes back to trying to reframe things 
more broadly in a stoic manner, right? So you go to a restaurant and the first thing you could do is be like, oh, this is a great restaurant. I have really high expectations for service and food. And then the waiter doesn't come to your table quick enough and you're mad. On the flip side, you could be like, I'm at a restaurant. I'm alive. I'm in the first world. I, I'm having someone else make this great food for me. Uh, I'm, I'm not having to do it myself. I'm with great company. It's a nice day. Um, all, all these different things. I'm able to sit here safely, uh, unmolested, and eat my food, right? So if, if that's how you're coming into it, you're not going to care when the waiter is delayed to the same degree, if at all. And, and this applies to a lot of different things. So having a general practice of stoicism where you consider the fact that you're going to die someday and you're not always going to have these simple things. You consider the fact that right now I'm sitting in this chair relatively pain-free and that will change. I will get old and I'm going to have various issues. I'm going to have back pain. I'm going to have knee pain, neck pain. Um, and this is a luxury and this is something I'm not always going to have. I'm able to take a full breath pain-free or at all. You know, there's going to be a time where I take my last breath. I'm able to share this stuff with you guys, right? I'm able to try and provide some, some value and do something useful uh, for you guys. And, you know, we'll see the degree to which I'm successful with it this episode. Uh, but at least I'm able to try and do that. And I have a couple of you guys listening to this this podcast, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of gratitude I have for that. So... When you, when you cultivate that outlook, when you understand the finitude of life and you appreciate the things you have more, um, when you take a fatalistic approach to the past and when you, when you look at people out there who have a lot less than you, and I know this is like kind of a, it's a commonly thrown around platitude, but, but here's what I mean, okay? Have you ever gone on like a real estate website and looked at million dollar houses? Why have you not also looked at the favelas where people live, where they li live on less than a dollar a day? Maybe you have, but I'm just saying like when we go on Zillow, it, it's rare that we're like, show me, you know, a, a mud hut in an extremely impoverished part of the world, you know, or show me like, um, the inside of like a homeless person's tent. Let's look at some of these, right? It's, it's usually we're looking at these million dollar houses and it distorts our reality. It makes us fall out of love with what we have when in reality, most likely you're one of the luckiest people alive. Um, so that's the aspect of generally cultivating a stoic outlook. And I think that that really helps and is important too. Um, and overall, I think this is a very worthwhile pursuit. Um, for me, this is something I've been working on my whole life, basically. You know, I've had times where I'm an angrier person, and I think it's it's not a, not a great quality. Um, I've gotten a lot better at it, and I want to keep getting better at it. Plutarch recommends you practice the most with people who 
are going to retaliate the least. And why he says that is those are the people where you can get away with it, you know, where you're not going to lose your job. And those are the people you have to practice to treat the best. Um, so for a lot of us, that's like our family and friends. You know, they're not going to disown us because we got mad at them. They're the ones we have to practice to treat with respect when we're angry, to maintain our composure with when we're angry. And I think that's that's basically what I have to say uh, say on this. So this is obviously a new podcast format. It's a lot shorter. It's a lot tighter. I'm not trying to make it short. I'm just trying to say what I have to say about the topic and benefit you guys that way. There will be longer episodes within this format, but reach out and tell me what you think. Uh, I'm on Twitter at AY0N underscore B. And yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping this is like more useful to you guys. Next week, we're going to be talking about Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, who is a champion poker player and a PhD in psychology. And her work on decision science is just fantastic and has really benefited me. So we're going to go through a bunch of her books over time, maybe not right in a row, but the next one is going to be Thinking in Bets. And I think you're going to get a lot of value out of that, honestly. Um, So I hope you'll join us for that. And I hope this was useful to you. So thank you for listening.